Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to stand before you today to read the word. This morning, we discover the solid ground of God's sovereign grace on which we anchor our hope. The formula for secure and steadfast hope is simply this. God gives a promise, plus God gives an oath to guarantee the promise. Simple math. Together, these equate to the anchored hope. God invites you to trust him and his promises. Please join me as we read God's word together. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is a final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more con convincingly to the heirs of the promise uh, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of soul and a hope that enters into the inner peace place, excuse me, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Please read with me the responsive reading. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Grass withers, the flower fades. Thank you, Carl. Well, church, if you got Bibles, keep them open. We're going to unpack this passage. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some scattered about we'd love to give you or encourage you to pull out your phone. Uh, we listen to God's word because we truly believe that worshiping God, that he wants to speak to you, that God's spirit wants to use God's word to encourage you, to empower you. And I'm going to go a step further and I'm going to say this, that I believe that God wants to not only speak to you and some people in here, he wants to really strengthen your hope, maybe give you hope, but all of you, he wants to use you to share hope. There is a poverty of hope in our world right now and this anchored hope that he speaks to us is designed not only to bolster your faith, but that you might share the hope that you profess with others. Do you believe God wants to use you in that way? He does. God's used people in my life in that way. The past few weeks, I have, uh, since the, the war broke out, I have been oddly overcome with anxiety. It's unique to me to have it like this, and I'm just a moment of vulnerability. And he has used people in my life to give me hope. Some people have been very compassionate and they've said, Mitchell, you're, you're anxious. Tell me about that. Tell me more. I want to pray for you. Others have just been like very direct and convicting. Mitchell, you need to get over this. Just believe the gospel and the promises of God, truth and love. And I welcome that kind of truth that comes in relationship. But today, God is using his word 
to speak to a persecuted people, a Christian people that are overcome with problems. In chapter 10, we see their imprisonments. Uh, there's external conflict through persecution. There's internal conflict through uh, false teaching. And God is wanting to make clear the full assurance of hope. That's the context of the passage we're looking at. You see it in verse 11. He says, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have a full assurance of hope until the end. A full assurance, friends. Let's just begin with this. How about this? Can I tell you how this thing ends? All right. This, this whole thing that we call life, it's not like when you're a binging on Netflix and you fall asleep and you're like, oh my gosh, what have I missed when you woke up and you've got to go back and watch it to catch up. That's not what this is like. We know the ending of this thing. That in the end, God wins. That in the end, death is dead. That in the end, suffering and sickness are completely removed. And that light and love flood all of creation in abundance. In the end, we see that God has worked everything for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the lamb who was slain for our salvation. Singing worthy are you. And not only do we know the end, friends, we, we know that throughout history, God has been using empires, using the enemy for his own good. We know even in Egypt, when his people were enslaved, he demonstrated that he ruled over the most dominant empire of the day to glorify his name and free his people. You remember? And we know that when Moses led his people into the promised land, that God demonstrated that he ruled over the Canaanites and the Amorites and that he gave his people the promise of which he had declared to them years, generations earlier. We know that in the land that God even displayed his rule over Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms that divided in rebellion, by using the empires of Assyria in Babylon to take them into exile. We know this from history. 722 BC, Assyria carried off Israel at God's decree. And we know that in 586 BC, that Babylon had conquered Assyria and took the southern kingdom of Judah at God's decree. And we know that not only did God rule over empires throughout history, but he ruled in the midst of them. Because we see stories like Daniel and Esther, when they were in exiles and underneath the authority of these oppressive powers, these evil empires, truly, that God was working even there. And then he showed signs of this, either through Esther's banquet or Daniel in the lion's den. He, he gave dreams to kings that couldn't be interpreted but by the revelation of God. We know that God rules over every authority, every principality, Every dominion, that's what Colossians 1 says through Jesus. We know that God is working everything. Even the enemy intends for evil. He is working it for good and glory. That's what he's demonstrated. And we know even his rule over the empire extends to that empire of Rome where he used the Roman crucifixion, the implement of torture, to be the bedrock and the heartbeat of salvation through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
God rules over every empire of every age and he controls every authority and he's working it for his purposes. We know that. And in fact, we know it even goes further because you can read places like Psalm 2 where it was revealed that God laughs at empires that try to rage against him. And so you can know, friends, that the birth pains of this age, man, this air, air is like really blowing my notes here today. But the, the pain of our world today, as the nations rage, it is the pangs, the birth labor pains of a new age that is dawning tomorrow. We know it. God has demonstrated in the past and he's, he's promised it in the future. And so we're going to unpack this passage briefly. And I want to ask you to really pay attention because God wants to use you to give hope to friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, and you can have confidence in this hope because God makes a promise. God guarantees his promise with an oath. And that gives us an anchored hope. So before we unpack the word of the Lord, will you turn with me to the Lord of the word and ask for his mercy? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. So many of us, Lord, have deep anguish and questions, fears and pains. I pray that your sovereign grace would bring a healing balm that on the one hand, you would encourage us that you rule infinitely over all of history but you also are working intimately in our lives. Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that we see in this passage is God is giving full assurance, 611, is that God gives a promise. Look at verse 13. It's the first verse that we, we study today. For when God made a promise to Abraham... What was that promise? God made a promise that he would give a child to Abraham and Sarah. And you might not think that that's a ridiculous promise, but it was. Twice in the New Testament, Abraham is described in Romans 4 and later in Hebrews 11 uh, as an old man. But not just an old man. You know how old he's described? As good as dead. <laughs> like, that's an insult for anybody. He was so old, he was as good as dead. But not only that, the first time that we meet Sarah at the end of Genesis chapter 11, she's described as barren. A barren woman that could have no children and a man that's so old that he's as good as dead. God looks at that place and says, I am going to give you a child. And you know what their reaction was the first time that they heard this promise and continuously throughout the narrative? They laughed at God. Have you ever been at that place where it seems so impossible that God's going to fulfill his promise? It seems so impossible that he's working your difficulty for good. It seems so impossible he can bring life from death. So impossible he can bring strength from weakness. It's difficult to believe his grace is sufficient. That when you read God's promise, you just laugh. And that is, that's impossible. There's no way this relational difficulty can be healed. There can't be reconciliation. There's no way that my financial troubles can find not only debt-free living and peace, but also generous giving. There's no way that this tragic death that was untimely, 
this difficult diagnosis that's impossible to comprehend can actually be a place where God is going to bring life. It's impossible that in the midst of this global turmoil, that God can work peace and be working his purposes. It's impossible that in this racial hostility, that God can demonstrate and bring true unity. That in significant trauma, that God can bring healing. That in the devastating sins of our past, that God can bring forgiveness and actually redeem our worst ways into tools he used for his own ways and purposes. You see, this is what God does. He takes barren places and he works it where it's birth and even blessing. There's 14 chapters given to Abraham in the book of Genesis stretching all the way from Genesis 12 all the way into his uh, children that come after him. And the promise of God giving a blessing, a child, it would be Isaac, it doesn't stop with Genesis. It's actually a bedrock for the entire redemptive story all the way through Scripture. Because the, the child of Sarah and Abraham, his name was Isaac. And Isaac would uh, later marry uh, Rebecca, and have, they have a child named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 different children. One of those children, his name was Joseph. And you remember the story of Joseph when uh, he was sold into slavery uh, by his brothers, right? And he was falsely imprisoned. Uh, somehow, God used the difficult narrative of Joseph to bless all of the nations because he had the wisdom to steward the abundance for the seven years of famine. But that example of God using Jacob's offspring to bless the nations, it isn't even the focus of all of God's revelation. Because the promise was through Isaac, Jacob, and then Judah. And at the end of Genesis in chapter 49.10, we're told that a scepter would not depart from Judah. That is, a king would come from Judah. And Abraham's offspring would later bring a great king named David. And David was the king of kings. There's more written about David in the ancient Near East than anyone else in history. King David was an amazing leader, but he wasn't perfect. And he entered into covenant with God and was promised that one day there'd be a greater king that would come from even him, an eternal king. And this is important because when you read the New Testament, it begins in the Gospel of Matthew. And you know how the Gospel of Matthew starts? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. You see, Scripture is relentlessly focused on helping us see that God is faithful to his promises. He made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. And you know who the first people are in the gospel of Matthew to come and worship Jesus? Magi from the east, from the nation of Persia. And you know what Jesus' last words are in the gospel of Matthew to his disciple? disciples? Go into all the world, into all nations, and take the good news of the kingdom. In, in, that, in that promise fulfillment motif, it doesn't stop in Matthew. It goes all the way through the New Testament to Revelation. In chapter 7, verse 9, we see it's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, all peoples have been conquered by the love and the grace of God to worship 
Jesus, the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world, all of that came from a man who was as good as dead and a woman who couldn't have kids. And we think that God can't bring life from our places of death? Friends, God wants you to know he's faithful to his promise. It is not dependent upon our circumstances, how you feel, what you see. God is faithful and he gives a guarantee by an oath. And that's what he launches into in the second point. That he not only makes a promise, but he guarantees it with an oath. He swears by the highest thing possible to swear by, and that is himself. He says, verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently obtained the promise, for people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, when God is, listen, when God desired to show more convincingly, to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. The oath is a promise that God gives that is solidified by God's character. All of us look to validate someone's promise by something higher than themselves, so we know they're trustworthy. That's why in court cases, historically in our country, when someone swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, where do they put their hand? On the Bible. That is to claim the authority of something higher that would give validation to the promise in the moment. God gives an oath that he will be faithful to his promises. In this episode that this passage is referring to is in Genesis 22. When Abraham gets this promised son, Isaac, God tests his faith. God doesn't test his faith because he, he, he's just not really sure if Abraham's going to be faithful. I don't know, I don't know. God's not uncertain. He tests his faith to demonstrate to Abraham and to all of us, how we truly access God's promises. He calls Abraham, and we talked about this in our Sunday school class. We don't have time to go into it here. He actually calls Abraham to take his son, the son that he loves, Isaac, and to sacrifice him. But isn't this the child that God's promises were to go through? Yeah. And here's how the author of Hebrews describes this test. Can you put it on the screen? That by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up his son Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring would be named. But he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed God's promises to such an extent that he was able to offer up his only son, the child of promise, only son that he had by Sarah, trusting that God would still be faithful. Faith in God 
and trusting his promises is not equated to our feelings or our circumstances. God is faithful because God is God. And when God makes a promise, he keeps it. God is a man of his word. And he guarantees his promise with an oath. If you want to read it later, you can read it in Genesis 22. It goes all the way verses 1 to 19. But the particular oath God makes is in chapter 15, verse 19. All the way to 19, those five verses. God swears by the greatest thing possible, himself. God doesn't change, he says in verse 18. He cannot tell a lie. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is love. God is truth. Those don't change. And when he makes a promise, you can guarantee that he'll keep it. It's truthful, and he is being loving. But you need to diagnose your heart this morning. Join me in evaluating your spirit. Do you believe in the certainty of God's promises? Or do you allow your circumstances or even your own moral performance to determine whether or not you believe God is going to be faithful? Here's what that looks like for me in my life. When I know I'm being moralistic, when difficult things happen to me, and, and, and they don't even have to be really difficult. If you know me, you know I'm a wuss. So like when things kind of get rough, I start whining. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm not proud of it. It's just true, and I'll have to keep from crying. You know what I'm saying? But I'll raise my fist at God, and I'll be like, God, what are you doing? How could you do this to me? And it's like this light shines on my moralism. Do you really think, Mitchell, that you can obligate me to bless you because of your performance, like you're good enough for me to bless you? Do you really believe you access my promises by my goodness? And I say, yeah, I do. I confess that. But that's not why God blesses his people. God brings blessing because God is faithful. Bad things don't happen because you've been bad. There are consequences to our decisions. But all the punishment for our sin, that came out on Jesus Christ on the cross. If there is a reaction to our activity, it's not punitive, but restorative. That we might be brought to repentance and return to the Lord. And many of us need to pay attention and celebrate that privileged position of a child where a loving father disciplines us. But friends, bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And there is evil. And God promises that he is working good and glory. And that all of the birth pains of our life today, they're not the end of the story. So we can be certain that God's going to keep his promises externally because God's more powerful than our circumstances. And internally, we know that God's promises are based on his oath and not our performance. God is faithful to his promises. He's not going to be manipulated by your moralism. He's faithful because he's faithful. He's God. And these two realities provide a simple equation. God makes a promise. He guarantees with his oath so that we can have anchored hope. And that's exactly what he says in 19 and 20. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. A sure and steadfast anchor. An anchor, as we discussed in Hebrews chapter 2, that keeps us from drifting away. An anchor that gives us stability in the storm. An anchor that gives us strength to endure. An anchor that will not allow us to be tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves and the storms of life. An anchor for your soul so that you can have anchored hope and share that hope with someone else. Friends, God is very interested in helping you to be sure. Romans 8, he's working all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. If God is for you, nothing can be against you. There's nothing in all creation that can separate you from the, God, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Steadfast. This security that comes from the unchangeable character of God who, sways, who, who swears that he'll keep his promises. And then secure. Look at the last line of security. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf that in the inner place behind the curtain, we have a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. An anchored hope causes us to sing. Sing even in storms, dance even in rain. I've had two songs going through my head this week. One of them's in Swahili. I'm not gonna sing it. Uh, but when we were, our family was in the worst, what Newsweek called the worst place on earth. It's called Kabir Islam. It's in Nairobi. There's a small church there called Kabir Reform Presbyterian Church, and they sing this song in Swahili a lot. Yesua kiwa nzini mambo sawa sawa. Mambo sawa sawa. Yesua kiwa nzini. When Jesus is on the throne, things are already better. Things are already better. Things are already better. But rather than tell that story and unpack it so culturally distant, I wanted to tell you another story about a, a guy who sung in the storm. His name was Edward Moat. And he wrote a hymn that you're familiar with. Uh, uh, it has several names. On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, On the Solid Rock, right? So this guy was a carpenter, and he was on his way to do just his normal day labor, and he felt this burden to write a hymn. <laughs> God gives songs for whatever reasons. So he's walking to his day labor, and by the time he gets there, he has a chorus in four verses. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. It's based on Matthew chapter 7. Of those verses, several of them are actually rooted in this passage. His oath is covenant, his blood sustain me in the whelming flood. All right? I'll, I'll spare you from singing it, but my anchor holds within the veil. You know all this, right? So he wrote this song. And the next Sunday, he wrote it and he put it in his pocket. He went with a friend of his to visit his friend's wife who was sick. She was on her deathbed. And the pastor uh, read some scripture and prayed, and he couldn't find his hymnal. He wanted to sing. And on this deathbed, right by this place, William Moat said, well, I don't have a hymnal, but I have a song that I wrote. And the first time that song was sung was at the deathbed of a friend's wife designed to give hope. On Christ, a solid rock I stand. His oath, his covenant, his blood 
they sustain me in the overwhelming flood. And it was so enjoyed and appreciated that within a week, they had printed a thousand copies of that song and just begun to disperse it. And we still sing it today. You see, friends, when we stand beside the grave, the places of hopelessness, despair, defeat, discouragement, dysfunction, death, difficult diagnosis, we have an anchored hope because we have a God who is our forerunner. He's gone before us. He has made a promise and guaranteed it with an oath. So we have a living hope in the person of Jesus Christ and the promises that he gives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, on my heart, our people in here that are joining me in having difficulty accessing peace, peace that comes through your sovereign grace, peace that comes through your promises, peace that comes through your proven track record. Lord, would you please help us to believe? We thank you that you're a faithful God, that you've made a promise, and you've guaranteed it with an oath that we can have secure hope, Lord. Raise in us not only a, a just steadfast security, but give us a burden to share this hope with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Would you please stand and we'll respond to God's word by singing.